right, welcome to episode 18 of Great Quarter Guys, where we talk about freight and finance and everything in between. And today we have a, a great show. We have uh, a turbulent time in the market, uh, which we'll discuss a little bit. And then we have Mike Bottenzis. Right? I'm sorry. I always mispronounce your name. Always. <laughs> I, I knew. Bottenzis. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit, uh, you know, what's, you know, basically the competition between full truckload and intermodal. My name's Kevin Hill here as always with Andrew Cox over here. And yeah, it's, it's been a, a wild ride over the last, uh, I don't know, probably seven days in the market, uh, where we've had a, a severe sell off last week. Monday was a face ripping rally. And today we have, uh, we, we have so much news today coming out of it what do you guys think yeah i mean so we have our we have our first emergency uh rate down bringing rates down since uh, 2008 uh first time the fed has done that they dropped it by 50 basis points and the market is responding that it's not quite enough i mean they're still selling off they're down i think uh, we were talking about the dow's down 700 points or so about three percent uh mike what do you think yeah well i thought that rate cut was pretty inevitable i mean we see that with other types of things where 9-11 or other events that there's shocks to the system i mean now you have extremely low you know uh, cost of borrowing. Um, but it, it just seems like the market volatility indicates that no one knows anything. It just seems like we, you know, I think there's people are trying to get their arms around. Is this going to cause a, a global recession? And, you know, I, I think it, it could if, if there's a you know con- constraint with the supply of, of products to, to buy. Also, um, you know, consumers maybe feel less confident and just, uh, you know, tourism and travel are, are huge parts of the economy as well. Yeah, I think I think most recessions start off with uh, consumer sentiment or some kind of financial shock that then disrupts supply chains. But I think on on this possible recession or, or possible market anomaly, uh, you have the supply chain that is is disrupted, which is then causing consumer sentiment and business sentiment uh, to decline. So, I mean, basically, the coronavirus is something that is. That is starting to spread. I mean, it's not really a mass spreading yet, if you really look at the numbers. But you know, it's, it's a flu-like symptoms and a flu-like kind of uh, transmission. So, so there, there's a lot of worry out there. We had the ten-year, the ten-year bond basically broke through its record, and as we came in here to to record this, it is below. One percent, right? Which is by far historic. So you had a fifty basis point move by the Fed. You have ten years under one percent. We're probably I don't know the exact percentages, but we're down today again. So we're well over ten percent over the last week or so, and it all revolves around disruptions to to the the flow of freight going across the world. Yeah, so we we just published this uh, uh, another coronavirus update through the Passport Research team just yesterday, and you know we talked about how it's impacting shippers, how it's Im- impacting freight markets, and you know we came to the conclusion that yes, we're already seeing some input and uh, and cost side of things that are that are being impacted on the supply chain coming from China, but we haven't yet seen what the impact is going to be to demand because we haven't seen how widespread it's gotten in the U.S. We don't know what the consumer uh, confidence impact is going to be to this. You know, I think I think in my mind it it really revolves around, and we'll save this for the long short, but it revolves around how much the extent of quarantines happen in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I think that is what's really going to uh, put you know, fear into, into consumers' minds, even more than just the media is right now, every day kind of stoking it, saying that there's more deaths. I mean, they have to do their job, but you know, it seems like they're, they're pushing fear a little bit right now. What do you think, Kev? 
I, yeah, definitely. I, I think there's a, a lot of fear out there. There's a lot of unknowns. I don't think anyone can actually predict or model if, if the, the coronavirus will even spread further, how rapidly it will, how severely it will. So it's a lot of unknowns. And that is where I think the, the, the market selling off, you're probably going to have a couple rough quarters no matter what, just because of the, the freight flows. There's going to be a lot of spring inventory. Uh, in summer inventory that is just not going to make it here in time. You're going to have to, to get it quickly out. You're probably going to have to discount it to, to remove the inventories. And I think that's going to hurt company earnings at least for one quarter, probably two. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be fascinating to see which products just stock out. And and I, I don't think we know that yet, but certainly I think there's going to be a situation where there's just where there are going to be shortages of certain I, items. I think back to school is one of the seasons that, that I keep hearing about because that's one of the, the bigger seasons coming in the summer where orders uh, should have been manufactured and really be on the move by now uh, or very shortly. So that's that's one of the, the that's one of the items you know spring apparel too, mm-hmm. um, but but that should really be on the store shelves now. But it's been delayed you know from that. So going back to your point. Stockouts. I mean, you're probably going to see mm-hmm. quite a bit of stockouts, and if this uh, goes any further, then you're going to see some fall items that or 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 out of stock as well. Yeah, I think that's right, and, and I also think that just the consumers' sentiment has, has been has been shaken, maybe more so than people realize. I mean, when people are wearing masks in places where there really hasn't been any report of of an outbreak, mm-hmm. that just suggests that people are very concerned. They're, they're very concerned, and, and they're so concerned that they might stop going out to eat, going out to shop, you know, fears of purchasing anything because of contamination. Um, I, do you know how, you know, there, there's some news out about how coronavirus spreads. It's, 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 uh, it's e- more easily transmi- transmittable than the common flu. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it has, And it also has a slightly higher mortality rate. But again, you know, this numbers, we're basing a lot of this numbers on the Chinese data, which, you know, we don't know how many cases well, there are, you know, and, and throughout the U.S. We do think, and also when it, when it spreads widespread to the U.S., once it does get into our communities, uh, the U.S. has a, a much better healthcare system. We think that that will lower the mortality rate. It may end up being something very similar to uh, to a common, the, the seasonal flu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. So, but but it could change consumer behavior, which if there's a, a long term or even a, a medium term trend on that, that is definitely that'll hurt cor- uh, corporate earnings and and basically uh, how much ammunition does the the Fed have really? So which companies have guided down because of it? I know Apple did, and, and, and I, last week it was just company after company. Microsoft did, uh, Facebook, Mastercard. you know, Facebook, Mastercard, really everybody. Everyone was joining join the bandwagon last week, which is a, a good time to, if, if everyone else is going to announce, it's a good time to announce yourself, you know, mm-hmm. s- stick the news in the pack. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think FactSet uh, published some research on uh, they they studied some earnings calls from January first to February thirteenth, and I think, uh, yeah, the uh, the sign there behind you. Yeah, no, there's the sign. No, keep keep, yeah, keep no going. I, I think uh, the sign is actually behind you. Okay. Yeah, we jumped down here and forgot to put up our sign, and uh, so, so so basically we're gonna throw that up right now. Uh, thank you very much, Andrew. All right, kind live podcasting. Live it's always podcasting. Something. Yes, it's, it's always an adventure. Uh, yes, but pa- FactSet studied 364 of the S&P 500 companies that reported earnings from January 1st through uh, February 13th, and I think something like uh, 80% of them actually mentioned the coronavirus during their call, but only uh, something like 34% of those actually did guide down. Most of them just said that they, it was too early to tell. They weren't going to be able to. Uh, they weren't. They weren't comfortable guiding down because they didn't have enough data yet. 
Yeah, so, but probably, a lot of them have. You, you probably can't. Uh, you probably can't guide down with any accuracy because you don't know what the effects are going to be. But if everyone else is is giving a, a warning or at least uh, you know, basically signaling to the market that something might not be right, it's a perfect time to jump in there yourself, right? You don't want to. Uh, be the only person three weeks after saying, oh, well, you know, I think it's serious. Yeah, you don't want it to catch you, make it appear like it caught you by surprise. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be less punished for it by getting it in early. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Do you have anything to add on? Uh, well, yeah. Uh, well, what I'm, about the passport research uh, report that we did? So, you know, you, you went through it a, a little bit while ago. Uh, you can find that on freightwaves.com slash passport, and you can sign up for our passport research where we, we published three, four, five uh, special reports uh, a week and keep in turn of current events in the market. Right. And you also get free tickets, uh, basically free tickets to, to Freightways events with that. So you get uh, you, you, get, do. Get, you get tickets and all of our research uh, for an incredible yeah. price. So, And if you go up. on and sign up, mention Great Quarter Guys. That's right. Yes. You uh, here. Yeah, I was just going to mention the the impacts to manufacturing. We, we you know we haven't the ISM um, PMI came out today. It wasn't bad. No, it, it wasn't bad. It is slow to a to a crawl. Yeah, really. fifty point two from fifty point nine. Anything above fifty is expansionary. It fell off a cliff from October was it September October of twenty nineteen. Yeah, until the last, last six months uh, of the year. The, yeah, until the last two months. So even though it came in a little bit lower, and I don't know what expectations were, it's still a positive sign, right, Mike? Yeah, I would say so. I would say, you know, sort of a neutral news is good news at this point. So, um, yeah. I th- True, yeah. I think, that, that, I think it wasn't too bad. I think, you know, some of it, you know, the more impactful things you'll see maybe, you know, coming in a little bit later. Some of those data points take a little bit longer to, to see them right away. That's a great point. Neutral news right now is really good news because last week there was no good news. The only good news really this week is, is if you want to call it the, the Fed cutting cutting interest rates 50 basis points. They're, they're I, I don't know, do you call it they're manufacturing good news right now? Yeah, you know, as as in in whatever way they can. Um, But yeah, Seth talked about that last week. He says in in every sell off that he's ever been a part of the last his fifteen years trading, he's like there was always a there was always some good news, some kind of resistance news that would help bottom this thing. But he's like it just kept falling last week, and you know there was no good news. There was no like, oh hey, a vaccine's almost here, or you know x x y and z has happened. There was none of that. And you kind of see like on Monday, people were buying the rumors, right? Face ripping rally coming up. And basically, they knew that, you know, the central banks, uh, probably that the Fed was going to cut rates. And as soon as the Fed cut rates, the, the market, uh, I think it was up a little bit yeah, earlier this morning, uh, Tuesday, what, March 3rd. And then it, it completely reversed after the decision. We're down 700 points. And uh, we have, you know, a basically disruption in freight flows and, and you know, airlines and and rel, I guess, is is getting hit at least on the the volume side, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the the rails, like a lot of companies have said, well, it's too early to know what the impact is. But with rail, you can see the volumes every week come across, and at least on you know intermodal that you know we see in in our data. I mean, those have been really weak on the, on the you know the West Coast ports. Oh yeah, those those have been below where they would be normally just even at the worst day of a Chinese New Year. So so there, there doesn't seem to be an, a bottom that we've seen yet. It really hasn't, you know, Chinese manufacturing really hasn't rebounded at all from the New Year. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's still basically in that range. It yeah. might have improved just a smidgen. But, I mean, it's certainly not back to full force, which brings us to, you know, what we're going to talk about today, actually, mm-hmm. which is intermodal versus full truckload. Mm-hmm. So... 
Uh, there's advantages and disadvantages of both. And I know a lot of people out there, whether you're selling full truckload or your rail intermodal, uh, to be able to communicate this to, you know, the market, especially to customers and prospects mm-hmm. about what the difference is, what are the, you know, which one's superior to the other. You know, I'm sure it's, well, I know it's situational, mm-hmm. whatever your situational is, situation is, though. But there's a lot of details that go into into the intricacies of, of both that, mm-hmm. you know, I certainly don't understand a whole heck of a lot about what actually happens whenever containers come off to the port to get mm-hmm. to the rail, to get to DCs within the country and kind of how that movement is and what the timings are and kind of how the rate structure is, uh, how it is dealing with the railroad, which um, probably not very pleasant. Yeah. Uh, and, and how you compare that to, to full truckloads. So uh, that is what we'll talk about today. Sure. So really, I would say there's there's two distinct markets. I mean, the, the international intermodal and domestic intermodal, I would really try to think about those as being two distinct markets. So international intermodal are containers that move on the railroad in 40-foot containers, 20-foot containers, 45-foot containers, primarily 40-foot containers. So those are the containers that are the same containers that go on the steamships. Mm-hmm. Those come come off and will go on the railroad, you know, inland, long haul. So the customer there is the steamship line. And those would be agreements with, you know, railroad or intermodal company for a number of years, your multi-year mm-hmm. um, in, in duration. And so those, like the, you know, one example would be just, you know, Costco um, has the, you know, uses the port of Prince Rupert. Those are, you know, primarily an international intermodal market. Those are for the U.S. consumption. So those goes all the way from, Prince Rupert, really, Chicago. Yeah, so, so Costco lands in in Prince Rupert. Co- Costco, or I'm the, sorry, C- Costco. C O S C O. Yeah, yeah. The, the steamship line. Yep. So th- that's the type of international intermodal. Oh, the steamship move. line. The steamship, not line. not the store. Right. I know. Oh, okay. Sound, it sounds I, I, so I similar like, that it's hard to. Why, why would they deliver in Prince Rupert? They come back down to okay. So the steamship line. Yep. Okay. So that's the international intermodal segment. In, in, a, in a nutshell, it's 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 forty foot containers. D- domestic um, is, you know, trailers, a TOFC, but, you know, primarily the 53-foot domestic containers. So that can be truly domestic freight that originates and terminates in the United States, or it can be imported goods that are transloaded from 40-foot containers into 53-foot containers and then taken long haul on the rail and then eventually drayed. So, so the 53-foot containers are basically intra-company moves. So maybe from Atlanta to Chicago, mm-hmm. Atlanta to Dallas, Dallas to, to L.A. Um, the, the 53-footers that are coming, you know, transloaded mm-hmm. are mostly on the West Coast, right? For right. the most part. For, for, for the most part. So that makes it so you can take what's in five um you know, international containers and put them in three domestic containers. And so, so, so five forty footers into three fifty three footers. Yep. Okay. Yep. And and so that you know gives a couple of advantages. You know, one one advantage is it makes you allows you to make a decision later in the supply chain. So it's it's something that you know you think all these you know goods should be in Chicago. You know, a couple of weeks ago when they were in China, but you know things change. They, they there's there's too much inventory in Chicago. You can at that later time decide. Well, more of this needs to go to to Dallas or or some some other metro area, mm-hmm. um, and make that decision later in 
the supply chain when the containers are stripped and stuffed into those other containers. So it gives you more flexibility. More, more, more flexibility. So that's that's one advantage. And the other advantage is maybe obvious. You know, you don't have to relocate the empty containers back to the port, which is a big expense. And because the you know trade flows are so you know, one way, I mean, primarily from the West Coast to the East Coast, because so much more of the population lives, you know, basically of 80% of the population lives either in the Eastern time zone or the Central time zone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Well, I, it seems um, when you're comparing either truckload or uh, using intermodal when you're a shipper, let's, you know, it doesn't matter where they are. Let's just say you're trying to decide whether to two. Is it fair mm-hmm. to compare them on a cost per mile basis or is that kind of apples to oranges? And if that's not the way you should compare it, what should be the way you compare them? I would say the best way to compare it would be overall cost of the move. And the reason for that is intermodal move is more likely to go out of route. And so the way I would think about intermodal is think about it like a, like a barbell. You know, if you have a barbell at the gym, you have a lot of weight on one side of the barbell and a lot of weight on the other side of the barbell. And then in between where the handle is, it's, it's lower, it's lower weight. Um, so it's kind of like that on a, a cost per mile basis for intermodal where if, if something's going from Kenosha, Wisconsin to L.A., uh, Orange County, I mean, really the high cost per mile is those those road moves. It's not so much the Chicago to L.A., that's the low, it'd be the lower cost of mile. So really whether an intermodal move is um, going to be cost effective or not is how many of those out of route miles is it going to be. And so so much of intermodal is concentrated on these high density lanes. Are you going to have to truck it very far from the railhead, or are you going to just truck it a, a few miles from the railhead? That's really more important than, you know, almost anything else. I mean, really, uh, than, than the overall length of haul. And so th- that's why the way that really I think the best way to think about it is, you know, what's the overall cost of the move for, for trucking? And then how does that compare to intermodal? Intermodal should be a 10 to 15% discount to that. So the reason you would use intermodal is it's just it's cheaper. It's, it's going to be lower service, you know, primarily. I mean, the best compliment you can give intermodal service really is that I couldn't tell the difference that, that, that was a, it wasn't a truck. It was, mm. you know, truck-like. So, um, so that's really the way it, it tends, to, tends to break down on, on, on sort of the cost side. And so usually the shipper would be giving up a day of transit time. You think about it, you know, being the, the, the truck transit time plus a day to, to do it, right. you know, intermodally. And um, so is that know, all it really is? Is that a, a day? Or like, it, if, I know it probably if, depends on the lane, right? If if things are going if things are going well, um, you know, you think about it, you know, being truck plus plus a day, which you know, for a lot of things, that's 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 just fine. I mean, and mm-hmm. the 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 area where it's been, you know, a struggle has been, you know, either things that are very time sensitive or things that are like food that just spoil. I mean, they're really, that's still sort of in its, its nascent stage is, is having temperature controlled freight mm-hmm. in an intermodal situation because you have to have, to have temperature controlled, you know, containers. And, and that's just, it provides a whole another can of worms. And I guess that's why you still see reefer traffic coming in from yeah. California to the East coast and you have yeah. team drivers. It's, it's expedited because basically yeah. even in refrigerated units, it needs to be expedited. Yeah. Because you only have two or three days of of, of freshness usually uh, in transit, mm-hmm. certainly, and then maybe a couple days on the shelves, and then you know uh, quite a bit of produce is, is turning at that point. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so you have that expediency. Yeah, food is very um, you know time sensitive, and it's it's just it's just one thing that you know it goes such a long distance. I mean, you're you're thinking about so much growing and. California and so much consumption on the East Coast that, you know, and you, you can't just 
drive nonstop anymore with the ELDs and hours of service rules. You but, can't. No, you got to you got to team it. Yeah, over to to really be able to do that. So here's a question for you: If if a shipper is going to go intermodal, right? Let, let's say from I don't know L.A. to to Dallas. Mm-hmm. Right or LA to Houston or, or something like that. How much volume do do they really need to to move of say dry products to to make it to to, to be able to to negotiate a good rate for 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 those loads? You know, I mean, how much volume do you have to to really move to make intermodal work on a consistent basis? Yeah, I would say I would say more is better, but I think the maybe bigger. Um, question is, is it over a inter- transportation lane that's a dense intermodal lane? So, um, you know, if, you know, LA to Chicago, a lot of that is, is intermodal, but if it's, you know, uh, Atlanta to Memphis, it's, it's all, it's all going to be truck, right? So, so, yeah. so, so it's, it's, it's not so much the density of, of how much products you're, you're, you're moving. It's a little bit more the density of the, of, of the lane. I mean, there, there are a lot of companies that are, you know, intermodal, you know, called intermodal marketing companies that you know will you know are, are you know one segment of a lot of brokers will will have an intermodal arm and that sort of the traditional IMC doesn't own any containers but you know could you know find a container somewhere and arrange the whole move and you know pass some of that savings on to the shipper I mean it's one service that a lot of brokers are providing um, in you addition- kind of need to do that on a consistent basis though right if you're going to move intermodal you need pretty consistent freight on on a consistent lane. To, to, to be able to, to to set that process, yeah, I would say, motion, right? I would say so. I would certainly it would help. I mean, and, and also that's usually when you know sh- a shipper would think about intermodal when there is something that's you know consistent because um, it's it's just it's hard to get a shipper to use intermodal for the first time if they're so used to using truck and it's it's just okay we're gonna we're gonna you know transition from this you know relatively simple thing to this very much more complicated move where so much more can go wrong and are you going to risk your job to save a little bit of you know 10 to 15 percent of of the transportation costs uh, because that's a, a bigger issue if if something doesn't get there than if you pay a little bit more for mm-hmm. for, for trucking so it, it does take i think you know convincing and um you know for a sh- shipper to do that for the first time and and really they would you know think about doing it for the first time when they have you know a significant amount of of, of volume okay so, so really, uh, go ahead, Andrew. No, I was just going to, I guess, piggyback off that conversation because it, it's a term I've been hearing a lot lately. It's mode optimization that, you know, when mm-hmm. shippers want to try to cut costs in a, in a given year, they'll they'll think about what, you know, which mode do they want to move their goods. And, you know, what, what is that? Like, we've talked about that process, but is it, um, so you, you say it's more like a question of what lane your, your goods are going, not on how much you have or what, how much it weighs or the value of those goods? Well, well, those all play into it as well. Um, you know, I would say it, it tends to be a uh, freight that's relatively less time sensitive. So if you just looked at like a lot of, you know, who the big intermodal customers are, it's really the big, you know, nation, nationwide retailers. Um, if you just looked at, say, what, you know, who Hub Group's historical, you know, big customers, you know, were, I mean, Sears was the, the, the biggest, it was the first one, you know, when, when they were one of the biggest retailers. I and mean, Target has always been one. Home Depot is a really big one. Ashley Furniture. So it's a lot of consumer Freight that um, you know is released by a lot of the, the big chains, and, and a lot of them are imported. It does tend to be sort of the lighter weight, you know, freight. I would say in the the value side, lower value. It's a lot of you know clothing and you know some food products that aren't you know re- need to be refrigerated. So boxes of cereal, those, those type of things. General Mills is another big uh, intermodal sh- shipper. 
what are the, the four or five lanes that you know I, I i hear this around the office there's four or five probably intermodal lanes that that count for 80 percent mm-hmm. of the volumes and you're talking about these dense high traffic lanes mm-hmm. uh I, I imagine la to dallas la to chicago or two of those that that fall under that category yeah certainly those are those are two of the two of the biggest um you know chicago to new york is a big one um you know, between chicago and atlanta new york and atlanta um Dallas and Atlanta. Okay. So those are sort of the, the, the big ones. And Memphis is getting to be a bigger, you know, hub there um, as well, just because there's, there's a desire to move, you know, away from Chicago. Chicago's the, the, you know, most congested place mm-hmm. in the North American rail network usually. So there's a desire yeah. to, to bypass that, um, you know, where you can, but, but, but yeah, I mean, I've heard, um, you know, it was a, it's about two thirds are in seven lanes. I've heard seventy percent is in is in ten lanes. So it's it's it's. I think it's slowly but surely making it so it's not quite as concentrated in the the high dense lanes, but still it it, it still very so much still, is. Yeah. yeah. Mike, speaking of speaking of congestion, how has uh, precision? How has PSR kind of played into this? How has it changed the decision on the shipper side for where you're trying to decide whether you want to do uh, intermodal or truckload? Well, the the biggest thing is they've uh, railroads have walked away from some lanes. Some some intermodal lanes they have demarketed. Right. Um, so so that's been the biggest thing. Uh, you know, in the past year, the intermodal, um, you know, intermodal in general has lost share to, to trucking. Now, some of that's been because just the trucking market has been you know, weak, and and so that's been a stronger alternative than mm-hmm. than going, you know, intermodal. But but also there's been just you know walking away from. You know certain lanes. Now the rails, I'll say that they're that they're done with that. Um, you know, but, that, but that's that's you know played into it as 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 well. Um, and then the rails, you know, seem to raise rates or they're you know for, if, if you're thinking about it from the perspective of a intermodal marketing company like a hub group or you know you know JB Hunt, these big intermodal providers, they um you know they have to you know absorb higher you know wholesale rail costs and pass those on to customers which is gets to be more and more difficult as the rails um you know expect more more um you know rates from there so on the rate side we're talking about rates you know basically uh trucking rates are pretty low yeah let's just put it that way they're, they're pretty low they're basically yeah. in the gutter in a, a lot of ways yeah uh california is hurting right now especially you're paying a lot to, to go inbound because there's you know all the port traffic that there, there's not so that cr- pricing competition between intermodal and and, and truckload right now mm-hmm. how does that how does that look right now uh, what are the dynamics of of when that when, when which side has has the upper hand I guess and can you walk us through that scenario sure so you know the Right now, and really most of last year, I mean, it was been a very competitive situation for for the modally competitive freight, um, and so even in certain, they're about the same same price right now, whether you move by by yeah. truck or intermodal. Right? Yeah, well, that, well, then why use intermodal? True. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. that's so that's the issue. I mean, and 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 really, I mean, last year intermodal volume was down about um, you know, almost five percent uh, for for you know all last year. So far this year, it's been down you know similar amount you know four and a half percent something like that so it's it's been a struggle and, and last year the the, the truckload you know took some you know share and there there were some you know trucking companies that seemed to be hauling freight at kind of desperation you know rates maybe just barely covering their variable costs and and so it went into lanes that are traditionally intermodal uh, you know lanes like a like an LA to a Dallas now in the east that's always much more you know competitive 
with with truck because the lengths of haul are so much shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you don't see a lot of rails coming off the ports, right? Going what two, three, four hundred miles, right? That's mostly just trucked, R- right? Is that, it, is that- it, Exactly, and that and that was the other sort of big trend last year is just the the growth and taking a market share of the East Coast ports, because most of the freight that comes in on the West Coast is going to go on a railroad. Most of it comes that comes on the East is going to be trucked because so many people live within a one day drive. Call it within five hundred, oh, five hundred fifty yeah. miles of you know the coast. Yeah, and then you have L.A. where it is about a three day drive to to anywhere. Yeah, you yeah. know, basically once you get out of California, you have Albuquerque. Uh, well, Phoenix is kind of down there, but you don't it, like if you just go I forty, you see mm-hmm. trains after trains after trains, and you you don't really have anything. You have mm-hmm. Albuquerque, then Amarillo, then Oklahoma City. Yeah, so the, so and that's fifteen hundred miles. So the the L A ports have lost market share. Now they've, they've lost it for a number of different reasons. I mean, some of it's just it's a high cost place of of doing business, um, but but also it's just it's it's cheaper to to move freight on the water than it is on the surface of the earth. And so, you know, it, it's, it just makes the all water routes makes sense, you know, economically. Now some would say, well, it depends a little bit you know, on the season as well. If so, you know, if it gets to be peak season, you can move those goods faster into the interior of the country over the surface of the earth than you can in the water, which might take another, you know, two weeks. And that's all, all hinging on the Panama canal. Yeah. And there's just widened. And I, I think there's plans. China has plans to, uh, to, to dig another canal. They started that. Uh, I haven't heard that. Well, like north of Panama, like mm. in Nicaragua, I think. I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me. They've they've been building a lot in Central America yeah. and in Africa and everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I read that somewhere, but I don't know if that's that's old news or, or new news. It was in a book somewhere. So yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. So, but but yeah, there's that trend of moving it, moving goods on the water into like Savannah, mm-hmm. New York, yeah. and then and then going going that way. Yeah, all those ports have uh, have had. You know, major expansion projects, so they can accommodate the the deeper, the, you know, the deeper, sh- the bigger ships, mm-hmm. uh, that, and you know, that's a big part of the, the the name of the game is is having you know those giant container ships. So, on a per unit basis, it's a lower cost. Wait, what's the optimal price difference, or price difference between intermodal and truck to where they're they're really, uh, so there's not much of a choice, and then what's the the price when it's you know what I'm saying? I mean, when, you know, you when said, there's said, a big spread. Yeah, yeah, you said it was 10 to 15, not like on naturally. 10 to 15%? When you see it at like, 25, do you jump on the intermodal? Well, it, it still it still depends on what you're moving and the rails, intermodal companies, what they're, they're basically looking at the truck pricing and then adjusting for that. So, I mean, in some cases, it can be like a 30% difference, but I, you know, that's about as most as I've ever you know, heard it before, and that would be something that's just really well suited for intermodal because the origin destination are so close to the to the um, the rail ramps, mm-hmm. and because it's a long length of haul, and sort of all things make sense. And and, and the, the 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 rails, you know, intermodal is a profitable segment when rails, you know, have a lot of density. Um, you know, in a lane that's you know some of the most dense lanes, but you know, as as, it, as density breaks down, it really gets to be one of their lower profitable segments, which is why that you saw them demarket certain intermodal lanes. It's like improve the OR by getting rid of services. Yeah. And then that brings us to a couple of articles or deep dives that you've written recently over the last mm-hmm. two or three months about mm-hmm. the, the growth of intermodal. And yeah. is that growth story just basically over? Is it, is it kind of a, a contractionary kind of where they're, they're, they're demarketing different lanes and, yeah. and, and maybe that there's really no 
real growth. You know, you, the intermodal services aren't expanding nationwide, mm-hmm. or nationwide but yeah. aren't expanding to, to new areas or, or new lanes. They're, they're contracting down into the, the denser and denser lanes. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question because, I mean, historically, the, that's been the growth area within rails really since the inception of intermodal. Um, but you look at just the last five years and you would say, well, that's just it's just kind of a flat market overall. Maybe it grows with imports or grows with, you know, consumption or grows with the economy, but it hasn't even really grown with those things because it's, it's just the, the, the rails seem to take prices up every year, no matter what. And the trucking doesn't have that luxury because it's such a competitive marketplace. And so the rails seems like they're chasing themselves out of, you know, pricing themselves out of a lot of business. And, you know, when analysts ask railroads, would you consider, you know, cutting prices in light of the current um, transportation market, they say, well, you know, if you cut the if you cut the prices, it's really hard to get them back later on. And then we're just giving the service away and it's not really a higher margin business anyway. So they just they just don't seem to, you know, have um, much uh, reason to entertain that. It doesn't seem like so they I think their bigger focus is on the um, maybe with the exception of the Canadian rails focused on some of these um, commodities that there's just not a lot of modal modal alternatives like, you know, big chemicals and things like that. Or the bulk uh, the, the kind of the bulk products are, are those uh, higher profit or higher margin items than than intermodal? Yeah, yeah. Or, or container traffic? Yeah, I mean things like um, are they significantly higher? I would, higher I would say, I would say okay. so. Yeah, I mean, so it, it really, I mean, the, you know, the, the the you know bulk trains that move it, you know, you know, unit trains or shuttle trains, those tend to be the highest margin, you know, business. I mean, there's no modal competitive nature, modal competitiveness in some way, cases. There's no railroad competitiveness either. And then intermodal would be sort of middle to lower, and then sort of the, the least profitable would be sort of one-off trains. They'd have to go through classification yards and those things. But and that's kind of what they're they're cutting out with uh, PSR, or kind of cost cutting is is taking out all the inefficiencies. Yeah, and, and cutting costs. Yeah, I mean re- reducing you know reducing yards, reducing um, you know overhead where they can, um, consolidating dispatch centers. You know all of those things. Um, in, in some cases, running fewer trains in order to run the trains longer and heavier, and you know it, it's taking adjustment from customers that are used yeah. to having this picked up on Wednesday, but it's not going to be picked up on Wednesday anymore. In, in ten years, are we going to be still? Are we still going to be talking about PSR as a strategy, or is it just going to be how the railroads are run? I think it's going to be. I, I hope not. I'm sick of it already. But <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just going to be how the the railroads are. Are, are, are run and that the, all the margins of all of them are going to be very high uh, to the point where, you know, the, I think the, the regulations are going to be, you know, heavier handed. I think the, the regulations are going to be such that it's going to be easier for a shipper to contest rates if they feel like they're being taken advantage of because there's no alternative where, you know, there's, there's I mean, there's got to be some way to contest a rate that's more streamlined than the current process, which involves building a hypothetical railroad, which is just a process that doesn't make a lot of sense. Number one, number two, it's mo- a few, few, very few shippers can invest the resources to do that. So, so is that how you contest a rate right now? Is to, to, to build out a model of if I owned a railroad and this is is, is that how you do it? So, so first of all, it can't be an exempted commodity. So, so that you, okay. you can't. Um, contest intermodal because it's that's deemed competitive. Same thing with carload traffic. And the rates that um, you have to be using have to be the published tariff rates. They can't be a negotiated contract because you agreed to that negotiated contract. So the part that's on tariffs is not very much. So you have to be shipping via the um, 
the tariff rates, which is almost by definition higher than you would get if you were to negotiate a rate. So if you're a bigger shipper and you negotiate that rate, you can't do any, you know, can't contest mm-hmm. it. So if it has to be on tariff rates and you have to demonstrate that the railroad has market dominance and, you know, provide a, a model that if, you know, this railroad existed only to serve this customer, that it would just be a, um, you know, it, it would have a dominant, you know, position and it would be wildly profitable to earn, earn more than it, it would be more than revenue mm-hmm. adequate for the capital in, invested in it. And that's such a, a cumbersome process that can cost millions of dollars to contest. And, and it gets to be sort of lawyers arguing about, about how many, you know, restrooms this hypothetical employee, <laughs> this hypothetical railroad would have. It gets to be, you know, it's really is ridiculous, which is why there's been so few um you know, a successful, you know, contesting, you know, cases lately. I, I can imagine there's, so there's very few, Yeah, uh, maybe yeah. a handful. I mean, if, if even a handful, because yeah. that, that sounds like an owner's uh, process. Yeah. I mean, really the only ones that, that, that you know, have been successful that, you know, I recall in my time following the, the railroads was, uh, was DuPont against CSX. So that, you know, huge shipper mm-hmm. and there's no way else you can move those bulk chemicals other than railroad. And then there was one that was a, a utility in um, Atlanta that basically provided most of the electricity in you know, Atlanta that was a big coal shipper. Well, okay, that one works pretty well too, I guess, but there's, that's not most shippers. I mean, the small shipper just has no chance. Well, in, in Canada, there's, a, there's an alternative where you can um, you know, have the baseball-style arbitration. So each side puts their best and final offer, then an arbitrator picks one. So it's a little bit like playing mm-hmm. poker. And, and there you've seen you know, more successful, um, you know, rates contested, uh, more cases that are contested successfully by shippers, and, you know, shippers like um, Elk Valley Coal Corporation. So there's still a lot of them are, are big, um, or I guess tech coal now, the you know, big yeah. shippers still have an advantage there, I think, because they know how to play the game better. But. That seems like such a more ethical and cooperative way to do things. Yeah. Have, have a true, like, you know, uh, yeah. proper ar- arbitration about it. <laughs> Instead of building your own model. Yeah. I mean, and trying to be a, a railroad right. tycoon. Right. And and contest rates. Uh, I, I would have to think that process takes years to even go through. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, that's that's that's, that's insane. And, and I just one question about years that kind of popped into my head about uh, what you talk about. These are the duration is multi year. What what would it, what is an average intermodal contract? How many years are you looking at? Is this three to five or so? On, on the international side, it would be something like three to five. Or for for a steamship line it would be something like three to five for for a domestic shipper it would be you know typically a one-year contract and they tend to negotiate them right around this time of year so um you know you you think about the contracts for this year reflecting what the market conditions were in last year's peak which last year's peak has been described as muted or you know in, intense but for, for just a short period of time so so not really a strong pricing environment for um for the intermodal providers so companies like you know a, a jb hunt or a hub group or things like mm-hmm. that i mean you expect their rates to be their contract rates to be lower for this next year than they were the the past year right very cool that's great that was a great discussion mike thank you sir thank you very sure. much you want to jump into the uh pressure yeah. environment and thanks to uh carrier direct again that they they can they gave us some some great research for this segment uh that we went on on our conversation with the, the expert over here mike and uh so thank you again diane peter ryan uh as always it's a pleasure um, but yeah, let's uh, dip down into the DHL supply chain pricing power index. What number are we at this week, Andrew? We stayed at twenty, so we didn't we didn't move anywhere. Uh, we we had the first jump in volumes last week that we've had uh, of any non holiday week of the entire year. It was only two and a half percent, but uh, that was you know that was something. 
Um, and then Otri continued to fall. Capacity is still really loose. Or shippers are in a really dominant power position there when it when it comes to a capacity standpoint. Uh, and the coronavirus really hasn't impacted capacity yet. It has started to impact volumes on the on the maritime and on the intermodal side that will eventually trickle into truckload. But uh, it hasn't really hit us uh, hit the freight market that much in truckload yet. It, it hasn't, but it should uh, very soon. So so yes. basically, we are three or four weeks past Chinese New Year aren't we? Or maybe a little bit more now. And we're probably just now seeing, especially on the West Coast, uh, volumes. There's a lot of canceled blank sellings. Uh, a lot of those ships that, that have sold or nowhere near 100% uh, full. So at some point, probably in the next few weeks, uh, we are going to see we were going to see lighter volumes on the West Coast. I, I think we're, we've been talking to freight brokers this week, and they have been telling us it's pretty dead out in L.A. that they are having a rough time getting people to go into California, and they're paying horrible rates, hor- worse than intermodal. Yeah, I mean, there's, come no, out there's, no, of, there's just nothing coming out of there because, yeah. I mean, usually you can count on if you're in there, at least there's going to be traffic you can take locally or take mm-hmm. it to some, someplace inland or something like that, but it's just – these are the you know since we have that O Rail data series, this is by far the worst it's it's been. That's oh yeah, so yeah. Give us a little color on the O Rail and and what it is and what we're seeing in that. Sure. So so O Rail, we have data um, you know every day for intermodal containers, sort of broken down on, on the railroad, broken down by container size. And so the one that I'm looking at the the most for as far as the coronavirus is concerned is 40 foot um, containers out of. LA because so much of what goes in there is from from China and what you normally see is okay it's on a you know, daily average we use a you know seven day moving average it tends to be three um, you know three thousand thirty five hundred you know units a day when it gets to Chinese New Year that gets you know cut in about a third so it goes down to about two thousand a day the last data point is fourteen hundred something wow so wow. it's it's below what's usually the nadir of the Chinese New Year. By a significant portion, and every day, I, it's like the first thing I look at. And so every day, it's lower than than the last. So we're it's it, fascinated to see how how first of all how low it's going to go, and then it's like just going to be kind of a a U shape where it just stays at a low level for an extended period of time until factories get ramped up. So I, I think that's it's going to be U shaped, right? You, yeah. you, you you're not calling for a V shaped no. recovery in those yeah, those I would, outbound. I, would, I wouldn't yeah, think so. It's so. going to be no. U. So so it's going to drag on because significantly mm-hmm. if we go over to the east coast and we look at savannah i mean savannah is is about in the same predicament mm-hmm. on the, the drop in and rail cars coming out or, or containers sorry 40 foot containers coming out of the savannah port yeah yeah i mean it's it starts a little bit later there because it's just it's a longer sailing time to the east coast but 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 even there you're starting to see i mean you've seen in the past couple of week, a week or so it's a pretty significant deterioration there too yeah, they were both uh, over the last 60 days. I, I looked uh, probably last Thursday, last Friday, and both were roughly 30%, 40% over the last 60 days mm. coming out. Yeah. Right? Maybe a little bit more. I, I forget. Maybe it was 90 days or 100. I, I forget exactly uh, the, the time frame. But, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was, it was bad. But, yeah, so, so you know, volumes have been flat over 2019. Uh, I, I think if if – we, we could write a, a, a synonym book about how to say flat because every week it's just flat, you know, flat, yeah, it's been a broken stagnant, yep. you know, we, we know a lot of ways to say that. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're stuck at 20 and, and you know, with, with everything that's going on right now, talking about uh, traffic at ports, I don't know where we go from here. 
you know, we, if you want to talk uh, just for a second about our three month outlook, we actually have put our three month outlook at fifty five. So we have a, we have a, expecting a big swing, uh, and then again, we've. We haven't really taken the coronavirus that deeply into this three-month outlook. We're, we're hoping that things have sorted itself out by summertime. Um, yeah, subjects change any time, but at some certainly. point, we we're talking about out-of-stocks earlier. At, you know, basically uh, maybe a shift from intermodal, traditional intermodal, to uh, full truckload, which is expedited, basically mm-hmm. compared to, to intermodal, uh, just to get things on the shelf in a mm-hmm. timely manner. Because I think everyone's going to be rushing to get. Uh, though those seasonal items and those time-sensitive items onto store shelves as soon as possible, and you know all of that's going to be delayed. Will there be a bottleneck coming up yeah. at some point when when everything ramps up and we we, we get um, full boats coming in from China? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think the the you know early summer spring, it's it tends to be kind of a mini peak anyway because you have large items that get sold and shipped things like grills and things things for mm-hmm. sports equipment all those all these things that you know support going outside and and being active and outdoor furniture outdoor, outdoor furniture yeah. is another good example but you know it just seems like the, you know some of those things are not going to make it or if they do make it you're going to have to have a lot of expedited things but um but yeah I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's stockouts of of things that right now we're not thinking of but but later on there was some component or some piece of the processing and the manufacturing that needed to go through China that we just couldn't get it done. Do you think that the Christmas goods that usually come in uh, third quarter, do you think those will probably be delayed coming in this year? Do you think there'll be some some backlogs? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it depends, I guess, how, you know, whether they can um, you know, restart everything by, you know, by then. But um, you would think right from what we know now that there would be enough time for that because it seems like at least in China, the cases aren't really growing. It seems like now the issue is more the you know, people have taken that from China to, to Italy and mm-hmm. Washington state and all these places. So, um, but you, I would think they'd be okay for there, but, 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 but sort of who knows? I mean, I guess one question for maybe both of you is, you know, does this, you know, a few weeks ago seemed like everyone was so con- convinced that, the second half of this year, there was going to be tight truck capacity. Uh, yes. <laughs> Does this throw a wrench in that whole um, consensus view? It should. It should. Whether there there will be or not, I don't think anyone has a clue now. I, I think it, it does. It's a black swan event. And as all black swan events, you can't really predict them. I mean, by, by definition, you can't predict them, right? Uh, you can't predict them happening. And I don't know how long it is going to go. You know, basically, if we... If we get containment as uh, soon, then we'll be able to kind of maybe forecast that out. But, but as this is going on, who knows? Yeah, I agree. I, I think it, I think it's blurred the recovery story. Uh, I, I do think that there could be a, a very major capacity crunch if we start getting these full sailings. Like we're thinking like end of April, early May, at the same time as produce season, at the same time as people going outside. You know, these drinking a lot of beverages. I think you're going to have. A lot of a lot of volumes coming in uh, at that time, so you could see a little bit of capacity crunch there. Yeah, there there, there will a be a, a short ton, short term uh, bottleneck capacity crunch. I mean, it, it's got to happen. I think I don't think there's any way around that. It's just a timing, and we won't know that. And but but actually, we will know it uh, once uh, once a good start to to get on the water. We'll have thirty forty five days to 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 predict it. That's right. So that's good. We, we, we can, can predict have, it. Yeah, we'll have three three whole episodes in the time that it's on the water. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Right. Well, we'll have a, a a watch, you know, a watch report, yeah, maybe we'll like, we'll like a full screen here. somewhere, uh, tracking all the ships in, in sonar. 
Well, cool. You guys want to move on to long short? Let's finish do it. up. Yeah, let's wrap it up with the long short. We'll, we'll do one one kind of dreary, one kind of fun one. Uh, let's hope that that the first one doesn't happen, but we'll see if you're long or short. The uh, the first one is: Are you long or short that the U.S. will have nationwide, or at least you know, very wide uh, quarantines from the coronavirus? You know, Japan has already closed down schools all the way to the end of April. The NCAA has come out and said that they're thinking about playing the NCAA tournament without fans in the stands to to keep the players safe. Do you guys think anything of that type could happen in the U.S.? Let's start with Mike. I think it could for non-essential things like, um, I, I mean... My, Do you think people will work from home for a certain time period, widespread? Yeah, I mean, I think things like, you know, auto shows and things like, I mean, things that are sort of not essential, you know, large thing, you know, trade shows and those type of things. I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, they, if those were sort of canceled. I think if there were certain outbreaks within a certain geographic area they would have people you know work from home um yeah my mother-in-law everyone's testing them for um for coronavirus and and they're like on a watch list because supposedly some because they're up in uh, everett washington and supposedly oh, yeah. someone who not someone who had it but someone who was in contact with someone that had it was in that you know uh, <laughs> elder care facility that she works at mm-hmm. so like everyone it's it's sort of is on high alert, so it, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if if there are at least localized sort of mini quarantines, if you will. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. What do you? Uh, it's my turn. It is your turn. It, it is my it. turn. I, I think we probably will see it. Uh, much to uh, the happy ears of Seth Holmes, who's 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 calling for it right now, is that that we're he's he's got like better than fifty fifty odds that we're going to see some sort of that right, I mean, some sort of widespread, you know, different, you know, uh, basically more than one region, maybe the Northwest, maybe the Southwest, uh, with the Southeast, maybe in, in certain large po- pockets where we'll see people from working from home, we'll see schools closed, we'll see uh, it will spread to the to that nature. And um, he's calling about 30, 45 days of that. Yeah, I just think uh, the American and I agree. is so much more resistant to, to, to government influence than the Chinese is that I mean, I'm excited to see, you know, some of these backwoods toting uh, Southerners <laughs> see the government come to, come to their door and tell them they can't go to the grocery store. I think that's going to be fun to watch. True, but if the grocery store closes, then, you know. I'd like to see them try to go get the backstore country. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, right. I, I, I know. <laughs> but I think you, you will see some, 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 some widespread, you know, closings and, and things like that until, uh, until the, the, the settles. Yeah, I think it makes sense for Japan to close down the schools because of the idea of, with the Olympics coming this summer, that will be a major bummer. I mean, it's a, it's an incredible uh, economic boost to their. Will there be Olympics? Yeah, well, that's another long. Let's go, yeah, right? go long yeah. short. Do you think the Olympics are getting played this summer in Japan? I, I think yes. I do too. I'm long that. I, I would be long too, but if you gave me the right enough odds, I guess short. Yeah, of course. I would I take mean, the bet. That's on, a bet. On, on, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> we got we got even odds, even money. On I think these. there's oh, even be, money. I think there's going to be empty seats. Unfortunately, I think yeah. it's, I think it's going to look like Greece, where they had empty you know, world class athletes in front of empty seats. I, I I do agree with that. I, I'll go along that as well. But yeah, I, I think they will have it unless unless new information comes to light or yeah, new it mutates. Know, I, I don't know. All right, our last one. We've got uh, some big news in if Nikola Motors, the um, the hydrogen cell uh, 
company that creates big big rigs also creates they're going to come out with a pickup truck uh trevor milton one of our one of our favorite people here at freight waves they have announced just today that they are just yesterday that they're going to go public they're they're going to merge with a with a with an already public um special acquisition company uh called vector iq and they're going to change the number they're going to change the name to nicola corp their ticker will be on the they'll be on the nasdaq in kla uh, just valued at over just just over three point three billion. What do you think about uh, Nikola going public this early, Kev? So, you know, space 